0: The Grow Kinder podcast features conversations with thought leaders in education, business, tech, and the arts, who all share one thing in common, a dedication to growing kinder in their work and lives and helping others do the same. Brought to you by Committee for Children. Today, we talk with Dr. Monique Morris, an award-winning author and social justice scholar with three decades of experience in the areas of education, civil rights, and juvenile and social justice. She is the founder and president of the National Black Women's Justice Institute, an organization that works to interrupt school-to-confinement pathways for girls and reduce the barriers to employment for formerly incarcerated women. Dr. Morris talks with us about her new book, Sing a Rhythm, Dance a Blues. She also discusses why exclusionary discipline is such an issue for girls of color, and how educators and parents can work together to improve conditions in schools around discipline. Here are your hosts, Mia and Andrea.
1: I was thinking a lot about this last night. I feel like almost defensive on the part of schools because I feel like this issue in particular is a societal issue as so many are. And like, yet another thing that schools have to fix, mm-hmm. you
2: know, because our culture is so screwed but up. Schools are not a, they are part of society. Schools are a primary institution built within societal systems. Obviously. But it is also the rescue place Mm. for. I mean, the expectation now
1: is that it's the rescue for everything, which is fine. Which, like, for God's sake, something has to be because guess what? It's not going to be government. It's not going to be business. It's not going to be anything Mm. else. So it might as well be schools. Definitely not criminal justice. Not the criminal justice system. So okay. So it's schools, but it's just so hard. And I hear it time and again from parents and Mm. people in communities outside of schools that punitive relationships are how they're keeping kids safe. So I don't know that it's necessarily like I know that there's tons of complicated things involved in this bad phenomenon of the girls getting pushed out of schools. It's beyond just the schools being. I think her point is that there just has to be a lot more education all around, you know, Mm -hmm. about like what methods are most helpful. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that it's all because of race. Well, I guess ultimately it is all because of racism because, you know, I was reading some of her stuff about like zero tolerance policies being really bad. And so my experience with zero tolerance policies is much more around the bullying prevention Mm -hmm. stuff that I've been doing for years. And, you know, it was assumed at the beginning of sort of like the awareness around bullying that the kick them out is the right thing to do. Like just get rid of all the kids who are doing the bullying. And then it was found like, no, zero tolerance are actually like the worst thing you can do for the kids for the community for like in general all around it's not good so i feel like that that's changing i wonder if she feels like it's changing
2: i feel like i most hear it referenced in terms of weapons mm-hmm. and violent altercations and that that is not changing that's my
1: you know what i mean like zero tolerance you bring it, weapons, you bring a weapon right? to school and you're automatically expelled yeah yeah, yeah that's yeah. it whatever yeah. the weapon
2: whatever yeah. the circumstance yeah right you know and that's interesting and, i don't know that and, I don't and that approach. is a indirect reaction to school shootings right? right but the other part is i think where kids are very violent for instance there are preschools in the seattle area that expel children the first time they bite somebody what yeah so i don't know i mean i don't know if it's changing but there are preschools that will say if your kid bites they're gone that's it well, that's absurd. I know, like but all know. children bite. Yeah. Do they yes. not?
1: Like no. all children, at some point, bite. Yeah,
2: I don't know. Silas <laughs> like that. so didn't do that, but it's but like a children. very normal developmental thing that that's I did. Wants like <laughs> to try it out. I remember. I was like, mm, yes, I bit my thing. mom. But I totally remember doing it. Most
1: kids bite their moms at some point. yeah, yeah Sage for sure.
2: <laughs> it's not just reframing behavior; it's also being aware of your own
1: behavior. But when she describes the schools that are working, like there are lots of different supportive options. They have these things in the hallways. Kids can take a break. They're encouraged to, like, there was a whole thing about straighten each other's crowns. You know, that was really cute. You know, they're all encouraged, like, you know, that they're queens, so, like, you know, real queens straighten each other's crowns, which I loved. Hi, Mia. Hey Andrea. So I am so excited today because we are talking to Dr. Monique Morris. So Monique, welcome. And I just want to say off the top, like you literally brought me to tears in that TED talk because I feel like this is such an important issue. And I'm I'm really excited that we're talking about it today. I was just telling Andrea about the queen straightening each other's crowns, which I really yeah. love. <laughs> I love that so much. Can we just start today by talking a little bit about
3: this work that you've been doing. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on this show and this conversation and also for taking the time to watch the TED Talk. (laughs) It's always a a challenge to condense your work into 12 minutes. So I appreciate that you uh, found some value. So I started this work really a long time ago, I would say. The official story is that, you know, Push Out was published in 2016 as a hardcover, initially updated in 2018. And really, since that time, there's been a deep dive in this work. But really, I would have to say, you know, the work around girls and acknowledging some of the disparities that were taking place began for me, quite honestly, in the mid-1990s when I was a graduate student in New York and began to notice that there were growing numbers of girls in detention centers, and um, I was doing work that brought me in and out of detention facilities that would give me an opportunity to talk to girls and boys about their conditions. But I always noticed that while there were individuals who were there willing to discuss and engage with the boys, there was always a separate unit for girls that was not visited as frequently, Not in, the girls weren't as engaged as much. And so I started to notice something happening really in the mid-1990s. You know, in the 2000s, I wrote my first novel, Too Beautiful for Words, which explored this issue of prostitution and, you know, commercial sexual exploitation, though there wasn't that framework around it at the time. I was challenging a lot of the ways in which pimp culture has become popular in many spaces and really wanted to build from work that... Boots Riley and the Coup was doing with a particular song they had that really provided an opportunity for a strong critique, not just of the ways in which people were elevating pimp culture and prostitution um, as a strategy for survival, but also the ways in which young people were particularly vulnerable to that and girls in, in particular. And so, you know, that work really led me and again, back into juvenile detention facilities where I would talk to young people about the book. And that is, you know, sort of where I noticed that there was less of a conversation about the educational trajectory of many of these girls, that there were girls who were experiencing multiple forms of oppression, girls that were experiencing tremendous vulnerabilities, things that we would today... Recognize as childhood traumas that were not necessarily labeled as such then, and I wanted to have different kinds of conversations and bring awareness to this issue. Fast forward to 2012, I did a literature review to really examine, you know, where girls were showing up in this conversation about what we call the school-to-prison pipeline, and the school to prison pipeline you know as i was looking at it and the literature on the school to prison pipeline was a growing field but it didn't really include a lot of the things that i knew to be impacting the worlds of girls and the experiences of girls and i realized and wrote a paper about it and you know sort of realized that part of the problem was that we were framing the issue in a way that would undeniably privilege the conditions of boys by calling it a pipeline and by also really putting our emphasis on prisons and carceral facilities as opposed to all the other ways in which confinement impacts our community and the ways in which girls are experiencing a particular kind of criminalization in their places of learning. In Pushout and in the research leading up to Pushout, you know, we looked not just at the national data that was collected by the Department of Education, which found that Black girls were the only group of girls who were experiencing an overrepresentation along the entire continuum of discipline, but also that there were these sort of what appeared to be popcorn incidents or isolated incidents that were happening across the country that were demonstrating how Black girls in particular were being treated as criminal for their own victimization and also being criminalized and rendered vulnerable to criminalization by being pushed away from school for unnecessary reasons. And that, you know, was cause for concern for me. And then, you know, sort of fast forward with the new data, we found that not only is this happening, and, and we knew that it was not only happening for Black girls, Black girls are just the ones that we see it happen to across the board with respect to discipline, but that we see growing numbers of Latinas also Experiencing this kind of punitive response, particularly at arrest and being referred to law enforcement in ways that are cause for concern. Just to your point, I wanted to
1: highlight that you have identified certain things you know, certain reasons for young women to be pushed out of school that are really surprising, you know, over dress codes, over the way they're doing their hair, over their bad attitude, you know. Can you describe some of these things which may be surprising to some people?
3: You know, we expected to see the racial bias. We expected to see the racialized gender bias. What we didn't expect was that this would sort of show up in The conversation about dress code, the conversations about trauma and recognition of trauma. We didn't expect that we would, you know, necessarily be talking so much about the discretionary decision making that occurs in schools with law enforcement and beyond, but we did. So, you know, I think when we talk about school pushout, when I talk about school pushout, what I'm talking about are the policies, the practices, the conditions, and the prevailing consciousness. So what we think about these girls that makes them vulnerable to activities that or conditions that may put them in contact with the juvenile court or criminal legal system. So that means that girls who are not in school, girls who are pushed away from school for various reasons are increasingly vulnerable to being in contact with the juvenile court or criminal legal system. It doesn't necessarily have to be the citation that takes place on campus that then places them into contact with the juvenile court. As we know, girls who are not in school are more likely to participate in underground economies or to experience other forms of victimization and harm that can also lead them into contact with the juvenile court or criminal legal system. And so this Is about, you know, the biased policies such as the codes of conduct that make it a violation of the code and cause for turning a girl away if she has extensions in her hair or braids or an afro or dreadlocks. There are codes that say that the way a girl dresses has to be without rips and jeans or has to be a certain length or, you know, that deny them, you know, an opportunity to wear tank tops on a hot day. And all those kinds of policies, while they may make sense to adults who want to make the school environment a place that you know, people see as, or young people learn to see as a place for professional dress, what we've actually been doing is paying so much attention to what children are wearing to school that we're de-emphasizing the reason they're there in the first place. <laughs> and for Black girls and brown girls and fuller-bodied girls, What we're seeing is that there's a reading of their bodies in a way that actually invites, you know, a perpetuation of rape culture by not only paying attention, primary attention to what her body looks like in her clothes and whether that's appropriate or not. But the actual reading of these young women and girls' bodies as somehow provocative when we shouldn't be doing that at all. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's like, it's tank top weather, you know? (laughs) You know, I mean, it's hot out, you know, and I get that there is an opportunity and there are many schools that have begun the process of looking at how to engage in the conversation about dress codes that are anti-oppressive and that don't necessarily invite adults to be scanning the bodies of children and determining for them what is appropriate and that invite conversations about what it means to be professional in learning spaces, if that's what we're after. There are also schools that don't care about that and really just spend their time focused on whether students have completed homework assignments and are arriving at school ready to learn and be in community with their classmates. There's such a great variance in how our educational systems are responding to this issue and really, until we started talking about girls, we hadn't considered that as a critical part of how schools are facilitating, how this culture contributes to the push out of girls, disproportionately black and brown girls, who are disproportionately impacted by those dress code policies, especially those that specifically say that one cannot wear hairstyles that are culturally relevant to them. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. This reminds me of a time in high school when a young woman that I knew was asked to leave school for the day for wearing her soccer uniform. The shorts Mm -hmm. were too short, Mm -hmm. but they were Mm -hmm. the uniform that the entire soccer team wore, but her Mm -hmm. legs were longer. And so, where the Mm -hmm. shorts fell on her body were different, but if she'd worn Mm -hmm. larger shorts, they wouldn't have fit. So, it was a sort of ridiculous instance of a policy being applied to a girl who she was wearing what the school told her to wear. You've also talked about the kind of power of storytelling in this and generating empathy. And I'm really curious to know how you came to that. What sort of drove you to say, okay, I'm going to really need some detailed stories about how this is taking place in schools so that people can connect to it?
3: Well, you know, I believe that everything I write is a story. I think there are so many different ways to tell a story. You know, I've told stories using narrative. I've told stories using data. I've told stories in art, right? And this to me just speaks to an acknowledgement of paying attention to the multiple ways in which we come to know things. In graduate school, we talk about this as an extended epistemology, right? To not only be concerned about what we are learning, but to really explore how we know what we know. And we can engage our experience in that practice. We can engage uh symbols and art and storytelling through narrative in that practice. We can engage data and sort of conceptual ideas in that practice. And we can engage the skills that we have learned through a practical application in demonstrating these things. But I think all of it leads us to a place where we tell a story. For me, and, you know, just given the oral culture and traditions that I come from, Part of how I have come to understand this issue and its impact has been to engage all of these ways of knowing, and I wanted to provide folks with an opportunity to explore just that. So the stories that I tell that illustrate these statistics that we read and that we keep to illustrate that there's a problem have often not entered the voices of those most impacted by this condition. And so it was really important to me that the stories not only be told from the vantage point of the adults who are writing the reports or writing, you know, the incident reports or that are, you know, sort of talking on behalf of young people, but to go directly to those young people and give them an opportunity to describe what this has been like for them. And that has not only been rewarding for me, As someone who studies this and is trying to design and work with communities to construct new outcomes for our young people and with our young people, but to really, I think, prime our young people who are experiencing this for a future in understanding that their voices are valid and that their experiences are valid in communities where they may not be received as such or promoted as such. But, I definitely think it's important for us to understand what this looks like and to illustrate what this looks like, you know, in the words of those young people who are experiencing these conditions and then to take that and not just take it and say, "Oh, well, we've heard their stories, thank you very much, right, but to take that information and then try to co-construct some responses that are valuable with that information.
2: You talked about noticing some things over over your work and your research. But what has made that a passion for you that it's not only research, Mm -hmm. but research in the service of justice?
3: Yeah, I think I have always had an orientation toward that. Just I'm from San Francisco, and grew up in a family and community that was always very concerned about civil rights, and racial justice. And for me, You know, my earliest memory, as as funny as as it may sound, my earliest memory of having a consciousness around this is watching, you know, every Black History Month, they would play films on television, probably PBS, you know, back in the day. And there was a film that chronicled the life of Harriet Tubman. And I remember watching that story and being drawn to her and being drawn to the fact that she'd been hit with a rock and it left a scar on her forehead. And then I went in the mirror and noticed that I, too, have a scar on my forehead. So for a while, I went through life believing I was Harriet Tubman reincarnated <laughs> and felt like I could be a part of this conversation and a part of this journey. And while that's not you know, what I believe today, I do think that. For me, very early on, there were discussions about equity in my home community that informed my lens and how I would do my life and how I would live my life. I started teaching very early on. I was a first a student in a breakthrough collaborative back in the 80s. It was called the Summer Bridge Program. That is a program intended for educators and aspiring educators. And so I started teaching when I was 15 years old and I was a high school student teaching middle school students. And that's the structure is that high school and college students who aspire to be educators really take on, under the leadership of a master teacher, a classroom. We learned how to design lesson plans, how to be educators while we were also being students. And so I think that experience really taught me to understand education differently at a very young age. Working with middle school students, you know, <laughs> will change anyone's life. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Tell anybody. us about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. It challenge anyone to think about <laughs> who they want to be in the world. <laughs> the program itself is designed to take high-performing students from those low-performing schools and put them in a challenging academic environment so that it was clear to me from the moment I stepped into the program that I was now being exposed to a degree of rigor in my education that my friends who were not in this program didn't necessarily have access to. And many of us who were in that program also understood that this was something that young people with resources had ready access to. And that to me was a fundamental way to begin to correct the disparity, but it was still acknowledging, it was really an opportunity for me to acknowledge that that disparity existed in the first place. So many young people go to school and just understand school to be what it is for them without recognizing what it could be and what it should be in many ways. And so You know, that this disparity is still there and that this opportunity, you know, continues to be, you know, elusive for so many is still a concern for me. But that's really how I came to this is just, you know, recognizing that there was some work to be done in this space. And as an adult, when I was doing more work with the juvenile justice system, it became clear to me that we needed to involve the education system much more intentionally. Than we were if we were going to address these issues around criminalization that continue to be at the forefront of many of our discussions about civil rights, racial justice, and social justice in general.
1: So, Monique, it makes me think about some of the stories from your new book, Sing a Rhythm, Dance a Blues, in which you do highlight some of the examples of schools that are working. And I would love to hear some of the stories. That you think our listeners would like to hear. I know I found several mm-hmm. very inspiring.
3: All right. Thank you. Push out, I think, and much of the research and developing scholarship on the topic have really, you know, spent a lot of time making the case for this investment. But for me, I really wanted to move on to say, yeah, we know our girls are worthy and I'm not gonna debate that anymore. What mm-hmm. I wanna do is <laughs> demonstrate that our girls are also experiencing some different outcomes when our educational systems set that intention to do so. So I wrote Sing a Rhythm, Dance a Blues differently than I've written other books. I think you may have noticed it's actually not written. It's written more in keeping with tradition of our musical traditions. And so there are tracks instead of chapters and interludes that include statements from practitioners, people who work with young people, work with girls, black and brown girls very intentionally that share their ideas for success and demonstrate, you know, really the wisdom of those blue women who used to be truth tellers and continue to be truth tellers in many ways that are liberative and that can free us from the traditions of oppression that many of our institutions continue to embed in the lives of young people. So One of my favorite stories, and I start the book with this, is really what's happening out of Columbus, Ohio at the Columbus City Preparatory School for Girls. And I had just a few minutes to talk about it in the TED Talk, but the book gives me more of an opportunity to explore. And the forthcoming film, Push Out, the documentary, gives us even more opportunities to demonstrate for the public that this is something, the work that Stephanie Patton is doing in Ohio is really uh, just extraordinary. But I think, you know, one of the things that Stephanie Patton, the principal of the Columbus City Prep School for Girls, has done is work with her team to co-construct a way of engaging with girls that acknowledges their humanity, but also doesn't seek to just modify behavior outside of a discussion about the structure of the school and the decision-making that can take place in the school. So much of how we talk about modifying student behaviors or addressing some of these issues of concern around behaviors have to do with what we might fix in that student, right? What we might change, what we might seek to do to get them to revisit what they have done without a deep consideration for the policies and conditions that might have triggered this young person to behave the way that she has. So what, you know, Stephanie has done in her school is really to take a deep look at not just, you know, the practices around responding to negative student behavior when her students do engage in some conflict, but to also really think about how they might restructure the formal responses to those behaviors such that they are not criminalizing or that take into consideration all the things that may have contributed to her decision-making at that moment. They have rethought how they use in-school suspensions. They don't even call it that. You know, they really try to move into a space where they're using every opportunity as an opportunity for learning and every opportunity as an opportunity for them to explore what might be a missing component in this child's life. They've provided spaces in the schools, not just to remove a child from class without instruction, but anytime that child is out of classroom instruction time, if she's not taking a moment and taking a breather and meeting with an adult to get her regrouped and ready to go back into the classroom, she's in a space where she is still doing work with a special tutor that is then reviewed by the principal herself. They have daily meetings where they set goals with students. They have a safe person for each student. So a trusted adult that the student can go to if they're in a moment of crisis. They, you know, have really tried to think about how to operationalize this practice of demonstrating value in each child and seeing each child. And it's really extraordinary. Her numbers, the suspension rates, the incident rates with respect to bullying and insubordination have all plummeted just by building relationships with young people and doing these kinds of intentional activities that really provide an opportunity for growth and for the young people themselves to recognize who they are and what they're capable of doing. So that's, you know, one of my favorite examples of a school that saw a problem, had leadership that said, you know, we need to do something different and set out to actually change not only what they were doing, but how they used the policies not to further punish, but to reconcile the harm in a child's life such that she can reconnect with school and get back to the business of learning.
1: You know, the thing that also struck me was that it's not as if there are, you know, excuses for negative behaviors, right? It's not mm-hmm. as if no. this is like a place where, you know, it's a free for all and people can, right. you know, do what they right. want. It's that these young women are very supported. There's I think I remember you writing something about, you know, like listen, they are actually giving you an appropriate response in yeah. in certain situations. You know, and the adults taking the time to really understand that and you know, and come up with the proper solutions and strategies, which also I think you mentioned included the kind of work that we do at Committee for Children, which is helping people develop their social and emotional competence and skill building, you know, so that they will be equipped
3: to handle all the challenges that life will give. That's right. I mean, it's really important to think about the ways in which we recognize that we don't teach inanimate objects, right? Mm -hmm. We're in schools with human beings who have feelings, who have experiences. And it's one of the ways that we know. And so it's really been important to this question to really think about the fact that those kids will not be ready to receive information related to that discipline if they don't trust their educational environment to be safe enough for them to do so, to fully engage, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I know that the moments when I felt that I was my strongest as a student and scholar was when I felt safe emotionally, physically, you know, spiritually, et cetera, Mm -hmm. to be in community, to learn, to make mistakes without judgment, to really think about Mm -hmm. how I could emerge as a scholar. And it worked for me, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I watch kids all the time come into space and instantly they hate it. They're welcomed at the door with metal detectors They Mm -hmm. are told in so many ways before they even step foot onto a classroom that maybe they're not supposed to be there that day, right? Mm -hmm. And so they are moving in space where there is not that same degree of safety established, where Mm -hmm. there's this way in which they operate under this, you know, large cloak of suspicion, that makes them feel like, you know, maybe I should do something else with my time <laughs> rather than be right, here right. and invest in this space. So the examples that I try to provide are not just to say, as you say, you know, to let it just be a free for all, but to really say, if we are working with young people, what does it mean to really invest in that social emotional development? What does it mean to build those kind of connections? How are educators themselves connecting with girls that are very different from them in some ways, mm-hmm. and in some cases, many ways, mm-hmm. um, to prioritize their well-being and to respond to their life experiences without there being the sort of way in which they are not invited to be in conversation about it.
1: I'm curious as to whether or not you encounter pushback from people, because it can sometimes be challenging. Do you have a way that, I mean, I, I assume that people You know, sometimes we'll push back with you and say, no, no, we, you know, because of safety issues or whatever, we have to be very,
3: very strict. Sure. I do experience some degree of that pushback and actually do include in the new book, The Single Rhythm Dance of Blues, a discussion about that spear of the rod, spoil the child uh, mentality. Yeah. Uh, But I do think, you know, when folks say that they need discipline or when there's this intentional way that people try to prioritize, punishment and harm as the strategy to curb negative student behavior Mm -hmm. and in some cases to criminalize normal adolescent behavior, it is important for me to really deconstruct with them why it is that we think that that is such a good idea and what the real outcomes are from that. We know that, you know, this idea of go strong, go hard may work as a fear tactic to deter certain behaviors but it really doesn't instill in people the kind of tools and strategies they need to build relationships that are lasting and sustainable. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, from scared straight programs that the research have proven to be less effective (laughs) than than other kinds of interventions that really build out relationships with young people to these zero tolerance policies and early criminalizing, detecting, you know, practices that, take young people or take people who, you know, engage in minor infractions and make a big deal out of those in order to deter what people perceive or predict might be a larger infraction later in life. All of these are suspicions based upon fears of what could happen. But really what we're doing is setting the foundation and the priming people mm-hmm. to commit those greater mm-hmm. acts of harm because we are further isolating them. From communities that can bring them into a space of healing, mm-hmm. and so for me, it's one of the reasons why, in singer rhythm, dance of Blues, and just in my broader work, you know, I think the emphasis for educational institutions and beyond really needs to be about healing from harms rather than masking them or scaring people away from them. Um, I don't think that you get anywhere good by leading with the politics of fear. I think the much more powerful way to approach any kind of sustainable development, and particularly if our intention is to build out what Angela Davis asked us to around thinking about schools as vehicles for decarceration, that we have to lead with a different emphasis. And for me, that's love. Mm
2: -hmm. It's, you know, it, it occurs to me when you were talking about the example of the school in Columbus that you talked about them trying to operationalize this. And a lot of what you're talking about, it makes intuitive sense, you know, especially when you do the work of focusing on social emotional development, relationship building, that's a lot of the reason that people get into teaching, right? It's not specifically about teaching you a math formula, it's because you want to contribute to the betterment of the lives the children will lead when they leave your care. But it's hard. It feels harder. You know, it's not standard. It's not one size fits all. And you have a massive system that has developed with all of its flaws and (laughs) difficulties. And so there's this element of, is it so hard to understand the needs of each and every child and to divorce those from your own needs and your own background that people sort of balk at it and go to tried and true, but not effective... (laughs) Methods yeah. of discipline, and then how do we address that? Have you seen anything that sort of works yeah. at scale yeah. that could be invested in?
3: Sure. So, one thing I'll say right out is young people know if you don't like them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they <Right? I> do. <laughs> Countless times I've gone in to talk to young people, and they'll say, Oh, the teacher, this teacher doesn't like kids, right? Or <laughs> does she even like kids at all, right? And that's why the first thing I offer educators to consider is that if you don't believe in the promise of children, and if you don't believe in the promise of all children, then perhaps school is not the place for you to be. Mm -hmm. I've said that to law enforcement officers, I've said that to educators, said that to administrators, if you don't believe in the promise of all children, then what are you doing in a school, right? So consider what you believe first and foremost. And if you can extend that to all children, even those deepest on the margins, right? Who are exhibiting if you lose hope in their promise, then this time to revisit some things. Okay. The second thing I'll say is that, and I said this in push out and I say this again in Singer Rhythm, Dance of Blues, is that young people will also be able to recognize if you have lost faith in their promise collectively. And so you're no longer an effective teacher if the young people don't trust that you have their best interests at heart. If they think you're just there to collect a paycheck, they behave as such, right? So those are that's the climate that we're co-constructing. But I start seeing a rhythm dance of blues with an excerpt from a conversation I had with a kindergarten teacher in New York, who talked about a girl who was exhibiting some, you know, problematic behavior that. She had a host of what we would describe now as ACEs, childhood traumas. She was experiencing a level of instability in her home life that was causing her to be disruptive in her learning space. So my question to that educator was, okay, so what do you do, right? And she was like, I don't lose her. What I do is I make sure that I have a relationship with the parent. And this parent was known to be belligerent to other teachers. So she was just sort of like, okay, here I am in this Mm -hmm. space of all the undesirable conditions, right? I don't have necessarily a partner in the parent. I don't necessarily have the stability at home to help me, you know, deal with the student. And, you know, her lead was, you have to be compassionate. She led with compassion. And because she led with compassion, she was able to develop a relationship and communication with a parent who was belligerent to everyone else but her. She was able to establish with this parent that she was there in the best interest of their child. I put there in quotes because really she established early on that during the school year, your kid is also my kid, right? Mm -hmm. That we are in this together. I have her from these set of hours. You have her from those set of hours. And let's try to work together. And through her compassion, through her regular communication, through not being willing to give up through her communication with the student, that she wasn't afraid to call the mom, because, you know, the Mm -hmm. students know. So that her parent had been belligerent with other teachers, she was like, yeah, I'm going to call my mom, because that's what happens. And she comes up here, and then everybody cowers. It didn't work this time, right? Because this teacher said, okay, call her. I invite the call. Mm -hmm. Let's have the conversation, and let's talk through what we need to do. And because she was able to connect in this way, she was able to build out a space where this girl could get the kinds of resources in the classroom that she needed to stop being disruptive in a way that was preventing her and other students from learning. And so that to me is a powerful lesson of, again, the value of building relationships in schools, not just with the students, but to also understand that this has to happen with the parents. Now, in another example that I give in the book that I talk through is also a program that the Mentoring Center runs in Oakland, California, that is an alternative program for girls who have experienced push out and most of whom have had some contact with the juvenile court system, educational reentry program for girls that I helped to establish. And in that program, we've designed a structure where because most of the parents are actually not available to have these kinds of partnerships with. Sometimes there are also proxies for those parents so that the young people who need an adult who can be a trusted, safe person and advocate for them have that person, not just in the school, but someone who's also outside of the school Mm -hmm. who might be able to serve as a liaison or as someone who can advocate for their well being. So ultimately, all of this work around social emotional developing, relationship building boils down to. Really instilling a process for every child to have an advocate and for that child to also feel safe enough to be an advocate for herself. Well, I
2: was thinking about, I mean, those are some good examples of how educators can and need to engage with parents or families to work together in improving, you know, conditions, you know, for the child and also around discipline. And me and I were talking earlier about. I have very young children and I've encountered preschool policies that expel children from preschool after they bite one time. Like if your kid bites, they're out of the school. Can you tell us a little about what you've seen or
3: what you are seeing around zero tolerance? So we know that zero tolerance is really not effective in really building communities that the young people themselves feel are safe. They definitely deter actions. That are related to weapons use and set a climate where young people are fearful of being in trouble with the law if they are to violate some of these conditions. But all of the research has shown that the zero tolerance policies are less effective than I think policymakers thought it might be in actually building out safety in schools. The interesting thing about the zero tolerance is that. It really, I think, was born out of desperation in many ways and really a desire to try to deal with something that is much bigger than schools, right? It came out of the Gun-Free Schools Act and a lot of these efforts that were put in place almost you know, more than 20 years ago now to try to ensure that the violence that was occurring in many communities would not seep into the school. We still have a need to discuss guns in this country and its impact on learning in schools because we continue to have issues with that that i think are probably outside of the scope of our discussion today (laughs) but i do (laughs) think that we have yet to discover the sort of (laughs) to use a pretty obvious pun the magical bullet right that can somehow protect our young people from this condition outside of building relationships and making sure that there are counselors and spaces to deal with folks who are having the kinds of disturbances that lead them to a place of feeling that they have to inflict harm in order to be seen. Okay. So the ways in which schools who have rejected zero tolerance policies are moving forward with creating and co-constructing in many ways a safety for their students is first and foremost to have conversations with students and families and educators about what they need to feel safe in their space. And often when you have those conversations, especially when you're talking about girls, rarely if ever are you talking about the need for there to be a zero tolerance policy. Zero tolerance just means if you do it you're out. So if young people know that they have no opportunity to grow and learn, first and foremost, you know, that is counter how we learn. Right. <laughs> like it's, antithetical to the learning process to say you won one and done,
0: mm-hmm. right?
3: At the same time, what is helpful and what is more impactful is not to shy away from the conversations about these kinds of harms and say that you don't have time to build out relationships and that you don't have time to ensure that people feel safe in their space of learning emotionally, spiritually, and physically, You know, and to think that young people will arrive at school just ready to be in that space. We start the process of getting young people connected to schools and preschool and kindergarten. And then we kind of forget that, like, people still need that process. I used Mm -hmm. to start my graduate school classes by anchoring in a conversation about what people need to feel present for the conversation. Right. We start meetings in the workplace like that. Right. Yeah. But we somehow expect middle schoolers and high school students to just arrive, open up to page seven and get started, right? Like we have to ground, that is part of the practice. That is part of how we build out connections and make sure young people are able to engage the way that they need to so that they can learn. And I really just believe that those school districts that have found a more robust way to engage in the alternatives to suspensions, expulsions, that have introduced restorative practices, that have mindfulness practices in place, that are really intentional about building out the one to one student teacher connections, that are really thinking about constructing a space of learning that is reflective in the curriculum and in the built environment of the students who are attending the school, that those are the places where young people then feel like they have some stake in their learning Mm -hmm. because they have stake in the community. And that's Mm -hmm. what this is about.
1: Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Monique, you know that our podcast is called Grow Kinder. You know, sometimes people think of kindness as just being kind of soft or, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, not like around the kinds of hard skills that people need. But um, I would love your perspective on how you feel kindness is, fits into some of these environments that you see
3: where young people, young women in particular, are thriving. Kindness is essential. You know, in the work that's happening with the African American Female Excellence Program in Oakland, California, one of the leaders of that initiative mentioned that a student had disrupted the learning space by cursing at a teacher and walking out of the classroom in a fit of anger. And that violated all the classroom agreements that they had established. You know, she thought she was done. She was like, I'm sure I'll not be allowed back in the classroom because I violated the rules. And so I accept the responsibility. That's where she was as a student. Mm -hmm. And when I talked to the teacher about that, she said, I wanted her to come back and apologize because forgiveness is essential. And I remember she said that. She said forgiveness is essential in this work. The fact that she framed the practice of understanding that this girl was having a bad day, recognizing that there needed to be some compassion and kindness with respect to her through this lens of forgiveness and an opportunity for her to come back into community as long as she said she was sorry and took responsibility in front of the classroom about why that was inappropriate. She could join the community again. She brought her in closer. She didn't push her away. Mm -hmm. And that to me is an essential act of kindness that must happen if we're going to fully redesign what education is for our girls who are feeling already marginalized by so much of what school has become. And so, you know, that to me is a, a quick example but also an essential one. It's deeply connected to a practice of understanding how to recognize who these girls are and what it takes for them to be present and active as scholars to exercise kindness. That's
2: that's such an excellent example. I think that Kindness, like many things in these conversations, feels a little watered down, especially when you look in the face of the trauma and and oppression that people of color and girls of color have experienced and are experiencing. And so to give us these examples of schools that are making headway, educational environments that are conducive to learning for each and every child, that's very helpful for us and for our listeners. So Dr. Monique Morris, can our listeners find out more about
3: you, about your books? I have a website, MoniqueWMorris.me, or you can just Google my name and that is what comes up. But I am also the president and co-founder of the National Black Women's Justice Institute, where we publish a different sort of discussion about these (laughs) issues, engaging in policy and research to discuss and explore some of these issues. So in those two places is where you can generally find out more information about me and my work. Excellent. Thank you so much for taking this time with us and
2: for all the work that you're doing. It was such
1: Thank a you pleasure for having me on. very interesting and important conversation today. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with award-winning author and social justice scholar, Dr. Monique Morris. You can find more episodes at growkinderpodcast.org. And if you enjoyed our conversation today, make sure to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts
3: or Stitcher.